happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 257. Wow, 257 for April 27th, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus in lovely western Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I am joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist teaching media literacy, and being a sixth-grade advisor at the Cassidy School for just a couple more months. If you'd like to buy a four-bedroom home in northwest Oklahoma City, you just, uh, you know, reach out and give us a call because we are ready to sell. But we'll be moving to North Carolina this summer, where I'm looking forward to joining the team at Providence Day School as a computer science teacher, but the department is actually called Ideas for Innovation Design, Entrepreneurship, uh, Analytics, and Sustainability. Did I say design in there? Yeah, anyway. You did. So, yeah. So, uh, glad to be joining tonight. And we were off last week, but kudos to you and the whole NCCE team for a fantastic conference. I got to catch a number of sessions, and I'm still looking forward to hopefully catching a few more on the archive. And it was fantastic, as always. And you and Mike really have uh, steal the show there at the end. So, what <laughs> was it 50 things in 30 minutes or so, or 30 things in 50 minutes or something like that? Uh, 30, 30 and 50, yeah. 30 we call it, I mean, like, it's it's performance art is what it really is more than anything else. But, uh, you know, we guarantee you might get a you might get a link that's interesting or you might not. So, we try to, uh, it's, oh. it's a very popular presentation. And, yeah. If you don't, if you don't learn something in that session, you, you're just, you're sleeping. So there's always something new. <laughs> totally. Well, um, um <laughs> we both are like, now moving we've on. We've forgotten how to do the show. We'll have yeah, to I know. We're a week show. off and we're, we're clueless. Well, um, well, I'd love to talk about, spend the hour talking about NCC. We've actually have an agenda for the show tonight, which is we're going to take some links from the last couple of weeks of, of, of technology news and kind of shoot them through the edge prism in hopes of getting some insight for our fellow educators across uh, uh, the learning spectrum. Um, tonight we have links from Apple, Google, um, uh, an access link that I'd be curious to talk about with Dr. Fryer, Microsoft, uh, the tech correction, our uh, relatively uh, uh, consistent theme week by week where we look at kind of technology reconfiguring itself to try to get rid of some of the UG. Uh, of course, we will talk about uh, Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter, um, some personal technology information and news, some miscellaneous, and then, of course, our Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, you have the first choice tonight. What topic shall we do first? Well, I predict we need to talk a little bit about Mr. Musk buying Twitter, or at least, you know, offering to buy. I think it's going to have until October, but it could be extended. And anyway, this is a a pretty big deal. So um, you put a couple articles in there. Um, I'll do the Ars Technica article from today on April 27th. Um, Elon Musk, Twitter's next owner, provides his definition of free speech. Now, I didn't include it as a geek of the week, but last night I actually stayed up watching the 66-minute interview that Chris Anderson, the founder of the TED Conferences, did with Elon Musk about a week ago. And it was before the purchase of Twitter was finalized. Uh, it's a pretty exceptional interview. But, uh, you know, one of these questions is why did he buy it and what is he going to do? Um, this article, uh, well, I guess he, not surprisingly, tweeted a couple times today uh, and offered up his, his definition of free speech, which is evidently just what the law provides, uh, nothing more. And so it's interesting because I don't know that I'd made this connection, but the article said there when President Donald Trump was, um, you know, kicked off of Twitter uh, and then there have been some other lawsuits as well. These lawsuits have failed because the platforms actually have the right to moderate content themselves and to decide who's who's in and who's out. Much like a restaurant can can decide to deny you service, uh, you know, based on on different factors. Uh, and so it really what he is. I don't know what the right word is, but seeming to, you know possibly suggest um you know because he was uh he's there's a couple of quotes in the article about um 
something he, he tweeted even today about Truth Social, which is the we've talked about this on the show, the up to now uh, failed alternative social network that um, President Trump or former President Trump has has put forward. You know, it appears that, um, you know, Musk is on the conservative side and that he is going to uh, try and reduce the amount of content moderation that has happened. And so anyway, this is an exceptionally uh, important thing. I don't have this article, but someone was telling me he's leveraged like half the purchase. It's 44 billion. And so he's taken a loan. And I think, I think he has to pay like 1.2 billion a year uh, on interest for what he's leveraged. And the thing is that's Twitter hasn't made that much annually. And he said that he doesn't care about the finances of this. You know, he sees it as a public square and he is a free speech absolutist, quote unquote. So I think it's going to be very uh, interesting to watch this. We've talked a lot about free speech and about some misperceptions that some people have about, you know, having boundless free, you know, rights to free speech. Um, the article points out there's you know, quite different laws and rules in different countries. I mean, in China, Twitter is, is blocked outright. Uh, the European Union is imposing new rules and restrictions, um, you know, for companies. And there's there's going to be a lot of lawsuits to deal with and a lot of mess. But he's taken it private or he would if this goes through, which I think the earliest of shareholders and regulators agree will be in October. Uh, just like we saw Michael Dell take Dell computer, you know, private uh, in order to make some substantial changes. Um you know, there's there's perhaps more potential for Twitter to have some fundamental changes. But I think they're going to have he's going to have to monetize it in some way. And that's a huge interest payment alone to yeah. have to uh, pay. So your thoughts uh, and there's a, you want to pick up those other articles, I guess, that you did about uh, the Twitter purchase. Yeah, I mean, the I do have the news article. Uh, the, actually, The Verge has got one link you can go to that that post kind of all the updates about this uh, over the last week uh, there. So that that's actually a pretty good resource if you want to kind of read about what the day-to-day -day looks like. Um, I will note, and and if you've been watching mainstream news, you know this, that Trump says that he won't go back uh, to Twitter because he prefers true social. And I was going to try to find an article about this, but true social shot up over the weekend um, as a top download on iTunes, uh, which is the first time that it's been uh, kind of in that space. Um, and um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised or, or maybe I am um, um, uh, that, that it's, it's causing some, some earthquakes across the, the Twitter sphere. Um, but the fact that Trump will go back there, uh, even though that a lot of the uh, kind of more, uh, I guess colorful conservatives is the way I'll put it. Uh, that that uh, tend to use Twitter as as a bit of a propaganda uh, machine uh, uh, have applauded the decision and and have said that they would be part of that. The problem, of course, is that you know free speech cuts both ways, and I don't think like you know uh, uh, Elon Musk, for example. I think it was Elon Musk that had the problem with the kid that was posting all of his uh, airplane. Um, uh, uh, voyages on Twitter, and I think he offered to pay the kid five thousand dollars. I think the number ended up a lot more than that to, for him to take down that Twitter account, even though he was using publicly verifiable information. I think what what is problematic in the broad uh, sphere. Uh, of free speech is that you know that that cuts both ways. Like if you perceive you're being um, uh, uh, censored in some way, but then want other people censored because you disagree with their views, that means that you're not really a free speech advocate. It means that you are a selective speech advocate. And as you've pointed out, Wes, we've had the conversation a half dozen times, uh, at least on this podcast, that no one has a right to free speech on a platform and uh, a, pri a privately owned platform. Yeah, privately owned platform. Um, and that includes a newspaper, that includes a Twitter, includes Facebook. Um, it includes uh, if you have a, a, a local debating society uh, that meets on Tuesdays uh, uh, at, at the local uh, community center, um, you don't have a right to, to be part of any of those unless there's a, some kind of public something involved there. By public, I mean government related. The government can't restrict your speech, but Twitter can all it, want, all it wants to. And the other thing that a lot of these articles are starting to uh, come to terms with is that 
it's not like they can have a site that doesn't have terms of services, terms of service that they support, because the bottom line is that uh, there's a lot of bad things that can happen if they refuse to censor speech at all. So um, I, I mean, I want to get off Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything. Anyways, I, I just don't think I'm, I'm going to be in a position to do that for some time. In part because of, 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 of how that's a primary channel for me for communication with folks. But, um, so I, I won't be going in that direction anytime soon. But, you know, if Twitter turns into a cesspool because of this, and you know, uh, Mr. Musk may say that he's going to go after bots, but, um, you know. Bots are machines. Machines produce speech. Like I, I just, it, it, it's just weird to draw these lines uh, back and forth. So, well, and one of the big things that's hit me um, listening, and there, I don't have it in the show notes, but there's a fantastic long read. Oh, maybe we put it in. The, maybe it was in last week. It's, 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 it's a called "Is Social Media Making Us Stupider?" I think, yeah. or more stupid. Yeah. And then there's a podcast I, I listened to. This an interview. Man, it's all about liberalism and the trajectory of Western democracy and, and political culture. And it's, it's about more than just social media. One of the things that I think, and I want to, I don't know, I'm thinking about, and I'll let you know about this doing like a separate show to just talk about these different ideas, but like the, the academic that's writing this and many mainstream journalists live in a different Twitter than I live in. And Twitter has been absolutely a one of the most important platforms and tools in my own professional yeah. growth and life for, you know, what I joined in 2007, I think, I think it started maybe in 2006 or whatever, or maybe it was earlier, but anyway, it has, it just continues to be tremendous. And so there's these different parts of Twitter and what we tend to hear about and read about in these articles is all the, you know, is, is the bad stuff and it's the, it's the celebrities and, you know, it's drama but there is a wonderful network of sharing and collaboration and just mind like mind melding, you know, idea sharing uh, that is just incredible. And, you know, if if Twitter would go away or fundamentally change, I mean, we've got other platforms. We have Mastodon, which is a federated system like email that anybody can install their own server and their their alternatives. But the thing is, it's this global platform and with both Facebook and Twitter. Hey, and by the way, did I tell you last? I don't think I did. I'm on TikTok, baby. Barbecue TikTok. Yeah. Uh, I'm amazed using that barbecue TikTok hashtag. How many views, you know, some of my videos, like 700 and whatever. It's just crazy. But anyway, when you have so many people on the planet on a, a common platform, it just, you know, it's a, it's a stunning thing. In a very good way, but you know, like all technologies you've got that are powerful, you have the the good and the bad. So, do you have any crystal ball predictions, Doctor Neifer, about what we're going to see happen, uh, either politically or just functionally with Twitter uh, with these changes? Well, I mean, I don't think it becomes a panacea for one side of of any argument or another, and one of the reasons why that's problematic, I think, is because they're um, um, I, I think that people don't that that, you know, it, it cuts both ways. Argument, I think, is really important. So I don't care what your point of view is, but if you feel like that you've been stymied by 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 Twitter's uh, censorship or perception of censorship, I'm not sure where I come down on that. Um, then the bottom line is that it's going to last for a while, but then you're going to get annoyed um uh, that other people who you find distasteful will also be able to take advantage of that. I also think that, that Mr. Musk needs to be really careful because, um, you know, if, if he creates effectively, cause it's, it's a private company. Now that's the other thing is he's not beholden to shareholders, um, and shareholders, uh, and, and, and boards that represent shareholders tend to have a lot of power if you're doing something that's going to destroy the platform. But he doesn't have to be mindful of that now. He could destroy the platform and have no real recourse for that happening other than the loss of money and maybe his financial ruin. Um, and so the bottom line is that, uh, if he decides 
that he's the arbiter of, of, of what's fair free speech and what's not. And then secondarily, he decides to, you know, for example, if, if someone, if some snot-nosed kid decides that, uh, you know, he's going to start posting uh, Elon, uh, Elon Musk locations, um, and he can't just take them down. Like, that's, I'm sorry, it's free speech. If you're a complete free speech advocate, you know, there's nothing you can do uh, about that if you're going to continue to philosophically hold that view. Um, so we'll have to see where that goes. I'm not getting off of it anytime soon. The other thing I'll mention, and to to your point, Wes, about how valuable it's been to you, I mean, one of the ways to 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 use Twitter in a very nuanced but positive way is just to stop uh, stop following random people, curate your feed, uh, block people that you find distasteful or that don't share your views, or create uh, mental health problems for you. And that's honestly been part of my strategy too, even though I'm a, what I consider to be, a, 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 a an advanced Twitter user. And I like to hear different points of view. There's people, even in the education space that just don't bring, don't bring any light to my life. Don't bring any illumination to, to points of view. And for me, I think the, um, you know, blocking them is actually an important part of me using Twitter appropriately. And I tell students that all the time, too. When we talk about social media. You don't like what you're hearing block, um, you know, that you don't have to listen to any voices. Uh, there's an argument that maybe you should, but you don't have to. Um, and I think that's an important piece of it, too. Yep, going to be important to follow. And also, um, I, we've said this before on the show, but it's so important for us to talk about free speech in the context of the First Amendment and to help people, uh, and I say people, to help you know, students in our classroom um, have uh, an informed perspective on that. Um, it is hard to talk about this stuff. And, you know, I'm in, in the midst of my Conspiracies and Culture Wars <clears throat> series and... Um, you know, we had some things come up today, actually, that that led to some some conversation about politics. And when we things touch on a political issue, boy, you it is amazing. This is just in a room of sixth graders, how quickly some people are going to sort of line up on either side of the room and, you know, hackles are going to get raised or whatever. It's like, well, wait a minute, guys, we're really focusing here on on the the moon landings. But, um, you know, free free speech is not an absolute, and and it's an important thing for civics for us to understand the Constitution, for us to understand our government, uh, understand how it works, and and to, to really move way beyond some kind of fantasy. Well, the three branches of government are perfect, and there's nothing wrong that could ever be improved. I mean, we've got, we we need to have a more nuanced look at that, and um, you know, there's some there's some significant players in in the digital space that. Um, you know, have extreme views, but I don't know. The, the extreme views get, get amplified, and I don't think that's necessarily going to be changing in uh, the near future. So, anyway, felt like we needed to start there. What else would you like to talk about tonight, Dr. Knight? Sure. Well, um, um, let me get to this one, because I, I think it's a pretty interesting thing. Um, Ohio State University has announced, according to 9to5Mac on April 27th, that um, they are going to stop a program where they give an iPad to every freshman to use for their four years at Ohio State University. And um, they, the idea was was that they were uh, they wanted to provide the tools students need to be successful inside of an educational environment. And the, the point was to, in the words of the story, aim to lessen digital inequities among students. Um, and... Uh, uh, these programs tend not to last uh, that that uh, I know that from from talking to, you know, uh, large districts, uh, regions, even states that have gone one to one, that it becomes complicated after a while. But they decide that they were going to stop doing that. Uh, current students that have them can continue to use them until they graduate and they will have a, 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 an unlimited number of devices uh, to check out to students. So if you want an iPad, it won't be yours for the four years, but it's pretty easy to acquire one on campus. Um, so the, the reason why I mentioned, oh, and then, then, uh, the other piece of this, which I thought was actually pretty funny, is part of the program refresh, the university will provide all undergraduate, graduate, and professional students with Adobe Creative Cloud licenses. And I was like, well, that's not, uh, that's not an equivalent to having hardware access. And while I like the Creative Cloud and myself license it both personally and professionally, 
it's not a universally uh, uh, usable tool for daily learning, right? It's great if you're in design or if you've got some skills there uh, to work on on school assignments, but it's not like Word, Google Docs, right, where it's got an immediate application to most of your classes. So the reason why I mention this is because I think that there is a decent argument to be made that one-to-one environments can be a little complicated if you're providing computers for students that already have them, right, or have access at home. It's not quite that those dollars are wasted by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, chances are students may actually bring better stuff with them to school um, than you are providing them, even though there's clearly some advantages to Students using, you know, consistent equipment, right? If everyone's on an iPad, everyone's on a Chromebook, everyone's on a MacBook, everyone's on a, 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 a high-end or low-end Windows uh, uh, laptop, absolutely, right? That 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 can be uh, provide some advantages. But it, I would imagine many, if not uh, uh, most, schools that received a lot of pandemic funding that invested in technology are close to one to one, if not at one to one. Um, but I'm wondering what the status of one-to-one looks like broadly for schools in 2022. So, Wes, do you have any thoughts there about, about one-to-one environments? Well, having some fairly extensive experience working with Apple and, and Apple schools and the ways in which um, Apple as a company, I think, does more and arguably does a better job courting leaders uh, and really, you know, winning over leaders to um, drink the Apple Kool-Aid. Uh, I wonder what the the real story here is in terms of administration who's changed and whether an Apple advocate, um, you know, left and and went to another institution. Um, I know that in one of our large districts in uh, the general neighborhood here, um, they had an assistant superintendent who actually went on to work for Apple, um, but had, you know, made sure that several grants were written uh, before they departed. you know, that made sure that Chromebooks weren't going to be dominant and there were going to be a bunch of iPads purchased. Again, I love iPads. I love my Mac. Um, But, you know, in this kind of a press release, what the provost said in that article was this will allow us to focus on, on equity and skills, um, which is, which is sensible. Um, I know that uh, a good friend of mine just retired actually from Tennessee tech and for years and years, my understanding was for their College of Education, uh, everything was on an, an as-needed basis. Uh, you needed an iPad, you checked it out. You need a laptop, you check it out. You needed it for the semester, you checked it out. They, they had some really good funding available. But, you know, rather than just say, hey, we're giving this to everybody, you know, whether you need it or not, and, and having this big outlay and we're going to refresh, you know, they, they had a, a library checkout model. I know you had, I think, a couple of weeks ago, yep. uh, an article about uh, Chromebooks and libraries, which I had uh, public libraries, which which was just kind of astounding. The numbers that we're, we're discussing there. Um, I think, you know, the the equity and the access issues are essential. They're so important. And I think we had a lot of that uncovered during the pandemic when, you know, hey, we're trying to all Zoom or Google Meet here and we don't have enough at, you know bandwidth and you know, it was devices, it was connectivity, it was multiple layers. But my perception has been that the vast majority of college programs are BYOD. Uh, There's a more limited number of schools, a lot of times specific to engineering or architecture uh, that are specific. I know our daughter, Rachel, um, you know, is actually will be using MacBook Airs at the prep school. She'll be going to a Virginia next year. But then the Air Force Academy, you know, everybody gets a Windows machine. It's been like that forever. There was another engineering school that she was very close to, to going to that did have a required Lenovo Windows laptop that everybody had to had to buy. But our son, who's at Carter School of Mines, uh, got by with his Mac and he dual booted, I think, more to, to play games, but he would go up to school <laughs> and use, um, you know, Windows workstations, Linux workstations. Um, you know, it was it was a mix of, of desktop school provided. And then he was able to do, obviously, a lot of his work and, uh, you know, accessing web based resources and things like that from his Mac. So I agree. It would be very interesting to take a look at that um, as we've you know finally moved to one to one at our middle school. And I think we're one of the last peer schools among the, the private independent schools that are in our association to actually go one to one. You know, we are a, a, 
sort of an optional BYOD at, at the high school. Um, but, but what we have found in most places is that the further you sort of move up the educational food chain in terms of going up into high school, uh, much more common to find a bring your own device, perhaps with specifications. Uh, And that's not true everywhere. There's, you know, provided devices, but, but as schools have iterated and kind of gone through this, uh, especially, uh, you know, in college prep, private schools, they're going to mirror a little more what's happening in the university when students have their own device. And then it's also just, you know, anyway, there's, there's, there's a host of different issues with whatever option that you go. So certainly focusing on skills and, and true equity is important and inequity is more than the device. And as we've said before, the iPad really doesn't provide all the function that you need. I would certainly not. And I don't think you would want to just be iPad only for all of your computing use. I just would not be able to be nearly as productive. And yep. most people uh, probably would find the same thing. True. And, and I'll also say too, that in that in another way to look at the iPad, it is the ultimate, uh, it is the ultimate companion to a, to, to a MacBook, right? And there's a variety of reasons for that. But I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, if, if I were, if I were a road warrior, if I was traveling for a job right now and I had the ability to do it, I probably would carry around exclusively Apple stuff, um, including, you know, I, I usually travel with some kind of television device to plug into hotel, um, uh, TVs because it, you know, a, 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 a fire TV stick or, I have an older uh, Apple TV in the house that would probably pack down pretty decently in luggage to be able to do that. But uh, if I had a a, a MacBook Air, um, an iPad, an iPhone, uh, um, uh, AirBuds, um, AirBud Pros, um, AirBuds, right? Yeah, AirBud Pros, um, and then my Apple TV, I could, I mean, I could, that's a productivity powerhouse right there because all those items work so well together. But, and, and there are times when, like today, for example, I had lunch with someone virtually, a um, member of my staff that, uh, 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 I was, I regularly have lunch with, with individual members of my staff. And, uh, uh, I preferred today as opposed to jumping or staying in my office and being on Zoom, I used the iPad instead in, in a conference room. And it was just a much more intimate experience. I felt like I was connected, uh, a, a little more directly. I didn't have other windows up and running and, um, you know, there, there are ways it's just a wonderful tool, but I think it's a better augmentation than it is a primary device. So, uh, where to next, Dr. Farr? Let's, uh, actually go to a tech correction article from a while back. This is from the Wired, from Wired on April 9th. Um, and I was just going to Google News to kind of get an update since this is, well, it's not that dated, but, um, it's about three weeks old. Um, this is called the Senate bill that has big tech scared. Uh, and this is about the American innovation and, uh, choice online act. And so <clears throat> we've had, of course, a number of, you know, events that have happened that appear to push, Oh, we're going to have some legislation. Oh, we have Cambridge Analytica and we've got a whistleblower there. Oh, we have, um, Francis Haugen, the Facebook insider, you know, uh, releasing all these documents and telling all these different things. We had the social dilemma, you know, video released on Netflix. Um, well, this article talks about how um, what the, this is a this is a bill that would bar the platforms from advantaging themselves over uh, smaller competitors. So, for instance, in Amazon's case, and this is a pretty big deal in the case of Amazon, but it's not just Amazon. Um, you would not, it doesn't mention, well, one of the things it might do is get rid of Amazon prime, um, because of the, um, well, it says the article says more than 150 million Americans, more than half the adult population are currently prime members. Um, but this free two day shipping, I mean, you pay a subscription fee. It's one of the things that's preferenced and that, you know, this particular legislation would, would take, uh, aim at. So I looked up on Google News, I, you know, in quote, search for American Innovation Choice Act and found an article from The Intercept eight days ago. Um, I'll drop this one in too. Chuck Schumer working closely with Senator Klobuchar to whip votes for antitrust bills. And so this article is saying that um, basically they need 11 votes, I think, to get something on the floor of the Senate. Uh, and Klobuchar had been pretty effective uh, in getting 
um, the legislation move forward. And anyway, it looks like there, there may be, um, some legislation actually on the tech correction that might be at least voted for on the floor of the Senate and whether that goes, gets through the house and then how much gear up the tech industry does. Cause that's part of what these articles say as well is that these representatives and senators, uh, you know, are not looking forward to whipping up Silicon Valley and all those lobbyists against them. But there's two different ones that this intercept article, which is from April 19th talks about. It's the, American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which is what I was just talking about. And then there's also one called the Open App Markets Act. And so that's to, I think, take uh, aim at uh, the app store for Apple. Um, and um, well, and it's not just it's not just Amazon. It's Google in terms of the preferencing that they do for products and services, you know, in their search results um, and you know, preferential treatment to their own products and app stores. This is for Google Play, for Google, as well as Apple. So do you think we'll see any legislation, Dr. Neifer? And do you have any legislative uh, bias that you would care to share when it comes to this uh, proposed legislation? Um, I, I mean, I, I get the devil's always in the details. And uh, I have read through this article and I've read some other coverage about this. This might actually be a good start. I think you point out some kind of immediate concerns about, you know, uh, uh, services that exist that maybe people don't have a broad problem with that could get snared into this. And that's part of the problem with 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 regulations that aren't nuanced. You don't want to create too complex of regulation because that tends to get either ignored or not enforced. But at the same time, you want to make sure it's effective without killing off the innovation you do want. And. I, I we, we've given voice to this several times uh, in, in, since the start of, of of our discussion of the tech correction. Um, I don't think that either of us prefer regulations. We prefer that Silicon Valley deals with this crap themselves. But the bottom line is, is they aren't, and there may be no incentive for them to do so. Right? Like uh, one of the things that, and I, I don't think I put any of these articles in. Um, or at least the, it's not the headlines for this week, but uh, Facebook has been complaining that uh, they've lost, you know, multi-billions of dollars to Apple's um, uh, new privacy pieces, while at the same time, there's articles to suggest that the, 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 the Apple privacy changes were much ado about nothing because tracking continues in a lot of, uh, of nuanced and perhaps troubling ways. Um, but the bottom line is that um, this is probably only going to work if there's both regulation and self-regulation on the part of, of, of tech companies. And transparency is probably one of the ways to get that. Um, I, I will tell you just a quick story that's related to uh, I, I whenever I'm offered an opportunity to download my own data, I do. I think that's an interesting study and knowing what's there. I think we talked about on um, the podcast that I requested my Amazon data um, a couple of months ago, and it took like like 30 days for it to show up, which I don't exactly understand how that works, because it seems like that would be an automated process. And, you know, uh, Fred in the privacy department isn't, you know, pulling individual diskettes out of a cabinet to, you know, cobble together the, if I remember correctly, it was almost a, uh, it was almost a half gig of, of data that I downloaded from Amazon on me. And, and an awful lot of that was saved up Alexa uh, MP3s. So there's some pretty funny ones on there. Maybe I should post that sometime uh, on a social media piece. But the bottom line is that uh, an awful lot of data is collected on you. And the other day, um, I buy a visible um, SIM card uh, that is a cheap, uh, it's a Verizon a service, a Verizon owned service for cheap cell phone uh, date or cheap cell phone access. And it's the card I use for pl on play cell phones. And when I want to work on experiments and stuff, and when I want to uh, try to uh, 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 create internet access in places. And I downloaded my visible data the other day and it took me almost 15 minutes to get the process figured out or require all these pieces. It's like, that's, it's like, no, this needs to be dirt simple for you to see the data that you have on you. And then if you don't want to use that data, then you have to either, either, you know, wait for the product to change or encourage the product to change or stop using it until it utilizes the data practice you find comfortable. 
and regulation. Like it's those three things together, I think, that are part of this. So we'll see is, is probably my best answer. Sounds good. Where to next? Well, um, a lot of interesting Apple things, uh, going down. A couple of, of, of quick hits and then some deeper ones. Um, the, f- the first one is The Verge reported today that the Apple Studio display, which is the new display that was, um, released, uh, by Apple when they announced the Mac Mini Studio. It's a $1,700, uh, it's a 4K display. I mean, it looks like a beautiful display. Don't get me wrong. It's still 1700 friggin' dollars, right? So, um, you know, and I, I purchased expensive displays before, right? Uh, at one point I bought a $999 monitor, um, that, I mean, I used it for 11 years, but, uh, you know, when the when big monitors were first, first becoming a thing, I wanted a bigger and a higher resolution monitor. So I purchased one, but used it for a long, long time. $1,700 is a lot of money for a display, but the one of the criticisms of the the Apple Studio display is that the webcam that's integrated into it is apparently terrible. So there is an article that talks about there's a new firmware available, and one of the things it does is that it does do a pretty good job of making the Studio display webcam better. Um, there are a lot of folks that um, um, uh, that have said that. The the webcam is much ado about nothing. Uh, others saying that how dare they sell a sub superior product um, in a uh, you know seventeen hundred dollar monitor? But take that for 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 as you as you will. Um, the other quick hit is that there is now um, an iPhone uh, repair kit available or, or DIY repair uh, uh, services available from Apple now in the United States. It covers iPhone 12 and 13 models, according to uh, today's edition of The Verge. Um, and not only um, can you buy, I think it's up to 200 individual parts and tools uh, to, to service your own iPhone. Um, apparently, you can actually rent or borrow tools from Apple stores to be able to pull it off. Um, the reason why I mention this, I, I, I think it's great that, that Apple's doing this. I think it's a very, 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 very clever strategy. The problem I have, though, is that um, I watch a lot of phone repair videos on Google. I'm gone, you, know, on, you know, on the Googles. On YouTube is what I'm trying to say. I love them. They're so much fun. They're so interesting um, because I'm that kind of nerd, right? That's the, the area of nerddom that I live in. And one thing I know is that iPhones are really hard to repair. You have to, in some cases, you have to like break the back of it, the glass on the back of it, and and scrape it off, uh, trying not to damage any more parts while you're doing that, and put a new back on it. They're covered in glue that you have to heat up, you know, with an industri- literally industrial heat pad sometimes to pull the things apart. And then when you do, if you screw it up, you lose key functionality on your phone. Um, when phones had the, the ID thumbprint buttons a couple of generations ago, you couldn't, you couldn't replace that as a third party because if you did, um, uh, uh, touch ID would stop working, um, on your device uh, because the, the, the touch ID button and the phone were paired in software. And if you had, if you didn't have the pair that, that, that was supposed to be there, it just stopped working completely as an identification device. Um, so my curiosity is great. These parts are available and you can go buy some nice toolkits. And to be clear, I mean, I have a, a, a decent uh, computer repair kit. Uh, I have iFixit's um, a pro toolkit. Uh, this, this is going to sound like I'm actually sponsored by iFixit this week. I am not. Uh, we are sponsored by no one. We are an independent uh, journalism outlet here at the Edit Situation Room. But, um, you know, it, there's a lot of tools on here. And, in fact, when I was going through my pandemic uh, hobby of refurbishing old iPods and adding SSD drives to them, this was a wonderful tool set. Um, but, uh, I would not touch those phones with a 10 foot pole because, or I should, should say a 10 foot uh, spudger, um, because the, the bottom line is, is they just look too hard to repair. So I look forward to these videos of, uh, there's an Australian guy named Hugh Jeffries that does a lot of, of, of equipment repair videos. Uh, he's really good at it, uh, and has tons of tool sets and, and, you know, takes sometimes a really broken devices and, and makes them functional again. Um, but I kind of want to see the videos of people who maybe don't have the skill sets required to make this happen, try to pull apart these iPhones and repair them from scratch. This is a huge shift and change for Apple because, oh. I, I mean, 
again, is there a, a leadership change responsible for this at Apple? I mean, what this is a huge about face because in the past, I mean, even cracking open the case of your device was you just voided your warranty and we're not we're not touching it because, you know, you dared to to open your device and not have a professional, you know, Apple care person do it. So I wonder if this is how much this is prompted by different leadership. Um, I, I mean, if they've been designing the iPhones more recently, like you said, this is like 12 and 13 models to be user replaceable, uh, have usable replaceable parts. Maybe, maybe there's something that they've done on an engineering standpoint. I mean, I think it sounds good if it results in people getting a good quality, faster repair, because as we've said, not everybody has an Apple store that you can just go take your phone to and drop it off and get it fixed. Um, so I think it sounds positive, but if anybody has inside information about that, it would like to tweet us and let us know, or, or just you find an article about it. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more detail. <laughs> it sounds positive, but it's a pretty significant <coughs> change in the policies that Apple has had for repairing their devices. Yep, absolutely. Uh, okay, a couple other uh, interesting Apple uh, articles. I see you already highlighted this one, so let's go there next. Um, we've talked about Apple AirTags, and in this particular case, there's an article from Digital Trends. Michael Allison writes about the phenomenon of AirTags clearly being used in domestic violence cases. Uh, and um, I, I guess I'll go back to that... Uh, um, uh, we've talked about this a number of times in the past. Uh, the product is really effective and easy to use and kind of de facto uh, the best in its class, at least in my humble opinion, having used uh, two, three of these tracker type devices uh, in my history as a user. Uh, in fact, the other day, um, it, it, it helped my wife and I find our lost remote control. We've actually got a little, uh, a little uh, silicon case for our Apple TV remote. And Apple TV remotes are notorious couch divers. So they like to get stuck in there in the crevices. And so not only does this make the remote bigger, it adds a little silicon uh, uh, holder for an air tag at the bottom. And if you have an iPhone, uh, uh, I think it's 12 or better, it has this amazing feature where not only will it tell you it's near you, you can play a little relatively faint sound on there. You can actually get uh, specific directions um, to it. Uh, in, and once you're close to it within 25, well, I'm sorry, 15 feet, it will actually tell you which direction the item is at until it gets right to it. Uh, so as an example right now, um, uh, my keys, let's see what's probably closest to me here. I would guess it's my bag. Um, and I, uh, in my daily carry bag, um, is, uh, around me somewhere and it may be a little too far away for it to get the signal. But if I walk around the house, it's eventually going to catch the signal. And the closer I get to it, it's going to tell me how many, oh, there it is. It's connected and it's telling me it's 29 feet away. Um, so I know it happens to be this direction. So if I get closer, um, uh, it'll start telling me a direction until it actually points an arrow in my direction and points me to it. And that kind of accuracy is just amazing from a consumer standpoint. But what's happening right now is that a, a lot of times these have become nightmarish tracking devices that people are using uh, to create terror for uh, uh, family or partner violence. And... I don't know what to say other than than um, I think Apple is working on ways to make this um, a, a little less, in, uh, I guess, creepy, maybe. Is that the word? I'm not entirely sure if that's the right word or not. Um, I would also note that just for the record that... Um, um, there are way, uh, there are tons of tools you can do this on Amazon. The tracking component of this, you can literally buy GPS devices where you can put a SIM card in them that will literally track around the world. Uh, this technology is not new and in fact has been around for years at this point. But what some people are, are kind of disappointed about is the, um, um, uh, is the uh, fact that it's so easy to use and these are so easily available. I mean, Apple will ship you uh, ones the next day. So I think any thoughts there, Dr. Fire? Yeah, I'm going to read the, one of the quotes here because the, the ubiquity of Apple devices and the, the way in which this is so 
readily obvious and available and, and, and being used. So this quotation is from Albert Fox Can, Executive Director at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Um, this is the fourth paragraph in the article. Stocking and stalkerware existed before AirTags, but Apple made it cheaper and easier than ever for abusers and attackers to track their targets. Apple's global device network gives AirTags unique power to stalk around the world, and Apple's massive marketing campaign has helped highlight this type of technology to stalkers and abusers who'd never otherwise know about it. So, you know, I think this is a case of things just becoming really mainstream. And then, oh, my gosh, what happens? I mean, in a sense, this is what's happened with social media. You know, in the early days of, of web, what we called Web 2.0, you had a much smaller number of folks who were using these platforms and all of all of the problems of the world didn't necessarily manifest themselves online. Some of them certainly did. But as you have larger swaths of humanity coming online, there's a lot more criminal activity. There's a lot more abuse. There's a lot more darkness that's, that's happening. And so I, I tend to agree with the author of this article that the things Apple's doing to, quote, mitigate are just kind of too little, too late. The genie's out of the bottle. But I don't know if you can put this technology back in the bottle. They point out you can do this with an Apple Watch. You know, buy a used Apple Watch and have it on Find My iPhone. And then, you know, there's probably going to be a greater level of ability of um, of law enforcement. Maybe they can do this now with the AirTags to be able to determine who is tracking that. I don't know how that would work, you know, for law enforcement. And maybe that's something that law enforcement could do. But the tools just aren't there if you're not using an Apple device to get notified in a lot of cases that you're being tracked. And I what I'm thinking is it's similar to becoming aware of surveillance and cameras. You know, in a lot of places, you just need to assume that you're being recorded, uh, in, you know, in, in a public space or sometimes even in a restaurant or something else. And, um, you know, it's just if if you're in a situation where there is somebody who wants to to do your do you harm, um, you know, it's kind of like being able to buy an assault rifle or something, you know, I mean, there's, there are tools that in certain places are readily available, uh, weapons, uh, things, technology, let's say that, that can be weaponized, uh, in, in just really powerful ways. I'm thinking I'm, um, going to have an opportunity to attend the Atlas conference in Orlando, Florida this next uh, week. I'm heading, heading there on sun Sunday, but I'm really tempted to pick up, uh, some air tags and have one in my bag and I have yeah. not yet dabbled in it. So you've got me on TikTok, Dr. Nyford, barbecue TikTok. <laughs> Maybe you'll get me to be an air tag. Yeah. This is what happens when you hang out with, uh, you know, smart people who, who influence you. You're like, well, I guess I need to jump on that bandwagon. Well, but I, yeah. I think the article points are really well made. I think it's, uh, this is a good ethical issue to talk with kids about. Yeah. You know, it's not something that everybody's going to naturally think about. But those folks who are attuned to these kinds of issues of, of stalking and abuse, um, you know, they're, they're being pretty unequivocal about it. But I don't know that Apple can put that genie back in the bottle. Yep. And a couple other quick notes, too. First of all, I, I, I can't wait to fly again in part because I just want to see throw one in my check bag. Right. <laughs> like, I think that's a that's a delight in itself. Um, the other thing that to also note that this was new to me as well that that Google is working on um, uh, there is a an Apple based or I'm sorry an Apple created Android app you can download to scan for rogue tags but apparently Google's working on uh, detection inside of of uh, uh, Android itself so there would be a built in detection kind of like there is in iPhones um, and that would be interesting I think if it goes in, in that direction. All right. Uh, let's jump down to, I, I, I had one of these in Ukraine war and then I put another one in, uh, and I, um, so I created a Ukraine Russia war category. We've, we've talked about some of these things before. Uh, but here's a, a one I've never heard of this source before, actually 1945. Uh, this is from April 22nd. Ghost, the new kamikaze drone Ukraine will use to battle Russia in, in Donbass. Um, it's kind of incredible how quickly things have been changing in Europe with respect to uh, European alliances and the support. And I don't have this article, but I think yesterday uh, a senior you know, Russian official said, if the West keeps arming Ukraine, then this may go nuclear. And 
you know, um, it's just crazy that this thing is going on. But this article really details this drone technology, uh, which, by the way, we've got, you know, community colleges and different universities with drone programs, coding robotics. Uh, we, I think I probably mentioned on the show a few weeks ago um, that these, um, uh, well, yes, the com- these kamikaze drones, at that time I had read they, they um, you know, weigh about six or, or seven pounds. This gives a lot more details about this. Um, and so this this Phoenix Ghost is similar to this what we I think I had reported on earlier called a switchblade kamikaze drone. Um, the drone is made by a California-based company called Avex Aerospace. Uh, they actually just started in 2017 with 500 employees. It specializes in low-weight LiDAR sensors. Um, the technology that's being implemented and used right now in the Ukraine is, is stunning. Again, I don't have this article, but somebody was telling me today, the 105-millimeter howitzer shells that we're sending have GPS, and so kind of like a smart bomb. They can actually be launched from these artillery pieces, but then directed within six feet of a target based on on GPS coordinates. So, you know, the uses of technology and the ways in which technology is being is, is being uh, used, um, you know, this obviously doesn't have a connection to consumer tech or the, the tech that we're buying in the classroom. But hey, I'm teaching robotics next year. I got my uh, course assignments for Providence Day School. I'm going to be teaching two sections of robotics with the new Spike um, Lego uh, robot system that took the place of the EV3, or it's the, the newer iteration of that, along with two technology applications courses. And then I think in the spring, I'll only do one robotics class and I'll do a introduction to engineering course. And I may be going to Carnegie Mellon University in person this summer for a three-day uh, robotics class. So anyway, there are definite connections to coding and robotics Um, we are, and I can say this publicly now, going to require not Latin in the seventh grade, but a full year of computer science. And this is a seismic change in the required curriculum at our school, in our middle school. So anyway, there is an educational connection to that. But I've I've told our daughter who's going to be going to the Air Force Academy, you know, next year after next, you know, she's going to be studying case studies of all these things that are happening and going down right now in the Ukraine. Um, and so these are some things I would just say that we could, we could talk to students about. And then the second article real quick is from Wired today on April 27th. And this, I've read a couple articles on, on both ways. This one is titled, uh, Russia is being hacked at an unprecedented scale. And I think shortly after the Ukraine and Russia war kicked off, um, there was this ad hoc group that literally there's a was a Google form posted online, you know, sign up for the Ukrainian IT army. And so the subtitle here is uh, from IT army DDoS attacks to custom malware. The country has become a target like never before. And they are posting these different targets, whether it's Russian online payment service, uh, services, government departments, aviation companies, food delivery firms. The Ukrainian IT army is succeeding in disrupting everyday life in Russia. And this is something that I've wondered about. We, we talk, hear this term asynchronous or no, what is it called? It's not, it's not asynchronous. Asymmetric warfare, which is when you've got tools like cyber that allow weaker, uh, smaller actors to, to have more power and more reach. We have not seen that we know of these kinds of cyber attacks escalated to the point where the United States is sustaining them from Russia, but we're certainly having a lot of attacks on Russia originating in the Ukraine, possibly originating other places too. And then also uh, I've read about the reverse too, as far as how Russian hackers are really uh, active. So again, did I tell the story about my, my Uber driver and the Tesla a, a couple of weeks ago who, who completed um, a cyber program? I don't know that I did. Anyway, I had to drop off our car to get worked on and had to take an Uber. And, and this gentleman who had been a general manager at a Kentucky Fried Chicken had gone back to school uh, online, Dr. Neifer, believe it or not, uh, through Rose State College here locally for two years and then I think Western Governors uh, university. And, you know, he's, uh, getting offers for 80,000 a year starting out in cyber. But this is again, something we need to be looking at in schools. Most schools probably do not have a cybersecurity 
you know, a white hat hacking track. Uh, but this is an essential part of defense and security. And there's hackathons. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, obviously for robotics and coding. But it's a big deal. And, and, and things are playing out right now on the world stage that are extremely dr- traumatic and tragic. <sighs> but they're things that we need to pay attention to. And it could also point to important skills that we need. You know, it, not every student in, in the in the class is going to become a coder and going to, you know, become a, a hacker. But you've probably got some kids that have interest in that. We need to raise awareness of students of the real positive potential and the importance of those roles. And by the way, we need to make sure that <clears throat> the girls and young women who are in our classes are, are having those kinds of opportunities and, and being um, energized, hopefully, to take those kinds of STEM tracks as well and, and not just the males among us. Absolutely. All right. What else? Well, um, I, I wasn't already four minutes to, to the top of the hour. Um, let's see. Any Google ones you want to pick up? We didn't do it. Yeah, that's where I'm actually looking now. Um, a couple of, uh, 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 quick ones here. First, um, the, actually, this is, it's under tech correction, but it also, it, it applies under Google. It's an interesting one. Uh, today's Verge, um, is, uh, talking about a new process where Google will allow you to move information of which you are doxxed. And doxing is a, the definition is a little vague because uh, I've heard a lot of people refer to it in cases where I wouldn't say it's doxing, but they say it's doxing. But it's basically the posting of personal information online about you. Or in some cases, if you happen to have uh, a, a lot of information about you that, that's in databases, uh, perhaps documents about you. And it's everything from home addresses to phone numbers to um, uh, maybe private social media accounts uh, or information you've posted on private social media accounts. Uh, gets posted and there's a you, you have to fill out a form and Google gets to say yes or no you like to prove what the harm to is um but uh, uh if you know they 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 buy your claim they'll take the reference to it off of of the search engine and I think that's a really positive step forward for this I know some people that have been victims of do- uh, doxing it happens a lot uh, with prominent members of, 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 of social media um, that uh, maybe have stepped into something political that either they didn't intend to or uh, has a, a wide audience of critics. And suddenly, you know, a couple of days later, you know, all the text messages with uh, sends of text messages back and forth to their parents get posted um, or a... Um, uh, you know, their their home address gets posted and people, uh, you know, uh, go to their physical home uh, to to harass them. And so uh, very interesting trend. Uh, it does kind of seem to uh, be a little bit like the the right to be forgotten stuff in um, uh, Europe. Uh, it's it's obviously a different category. But, you know, in, in Europe, uh, Google has to take things down uh, to, to conform with uh, uh, EU regulations um, that uh, are damaging information that's no longer directly relevant uh, uh, to modern times or modern days. And so um, it, it is an interesting change on Google's part. And I wonder if ever... So, you know, uh, slowly this is leading to some self-regulation that might lead to some good. Awesome. Um, one Pixel, other... watch, Pixel Watch, or there's a, I think you, we both put one in from Verge and 9to5Google, but it's a, a trademark uh, filing that Google just did for the Pixel Watch. So, Dr. Neifer, will you be ready to ditch Apple and the Apple Watch and head back into the Google Fold as the surprisingly named pixel watch is what yeah um i will tell you that that i am probably likely to more often than not carry a a a chromebook but with everything else in my life i am supremely satisfied um with my move back to apple world and um i don't think i've actually given my basic review on it yet i did pick up uh an ipad air 5 um i sold off my ipad air 3 and then i also had a gift certificate uh that was given to me for apple stuff and so i did purchase this beautiful ipad air 5 and so far um I very, very, very much like it. It's a, it's a very nice, um, uh, it's a, a, a very nice piece of hardware and, um, uh, I'll probably do a full review after a couple of weeks, but, um, you had the stylus. 
Pencil? I did not yet, but I'll get that as a, a, a addition. And I made sure to get a case where you could uh, the magnet was exposed, so I can just pop that on the side of the case. Excellent. And I'm not, yeah. I also love the I love the green color. Uh, uh, last year's models a little better. The the kind of seafoam green I thought was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And I would have got a seafoam green foam if they were available. But I I picked up the light blue instead, and it's really nice. Like it's just and a very what, you got that on Swappa. No, I bought this one new. So oh, you got a new. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is the newest model, and then I sold my okay. my old one on Swappa for a pretty good price, I might add. Um, and I bought that one used uh, a year ago. Um, and and then it had like literally seven battery uh, cycles on it, so it was basically new when I bought it. Um, but uh, I, so far I like it. But the Pixel Watch is the best chance, Andrew. I'm sorry, Google has to try to set up a better watch ecosystem on Android. No one's happy about Android Wear. Um, and I, and I, I mentioned this a couple of times right before I jumped to Apple. Um, almost every person that started wearing an Apple Watch that I know is still wearing an Apple Watch. Nobody that was on Android Wear um, was satisfied with it. So that tells you something. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, very good. Well, I'm afraid we have filled the hour. How did that happen? That was quick this week. It was. Well, that's what happens yeah. when we skip a week. We got so much yeah, to talk about. Next week, three hours of Wes and Jason talking about stuff. Um, well, I want to start with my Geek of the Week, and I maybe should have actually uh, uh, used a little extra time here. I don't think we've talked about this. I went and looked, but it is an amazing service that, Wes, if you haven't seen this yet, it's 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 pretty crazy amazing. It it used to be called BitTorrent Sync, and now it's called Resilio Sync. Uh, and I may have had that wrong. Resilio Resilio Sync. Um, but it is a way of creating peer to peer sharing, all a Dropbox or Google Drive. But there's no service because it's just locally hosted. Um, on your computer. So, and I, and I thought I would get that, that scrunch of the forehead, uh, Dr. Fryer. So essentially what you can do is, um, let's say you have a laptop and a desktop at home, uh, right? And you would like to cloud sync your files. Well, uh, Dropbox does that. Google Drive does that. OneDrive does that. Box.net does that. Lots of good service for that. And I love those services. Cloud computing changed the way I computed. Um, uh, I'm sorry, cloud drive uh, uh, syncing changed the way I computed, although it's pretty be pretty har- uh, hard to claim that cloud computing also changed the way I computed in general. But the you set up it on two devices and you sync them together. And without a third party server, it will directly sync between the two uh, devices. Like, again, all a Dropbox. And, uh, you know, it, it's a little complicated because, for example, um uh, because there's no cloud backup of this, uh, like if you lose both devices or something weird happens and you use access to both devices, the files are effectively gone because you know they're not backed up on the cloud. But one of the ways I do things like share my music library or if I have ripped movies from uh, my old DVD collection that I want to access, I don't put them up on OneDrive, Dropbox. Google Drive, in part because sometimes that's considered to be piracy, uh, and I know that people have lost accounts or have had uh, issues with that. I put them in Resilio Sync instead uh, because I can just have my computer on at home. Um, I can grab the iPad Resilio Sync app, and then assuming both are online, um, all I need to do is press up on my on my iPad if I'm on the internet anywhere on Earth. They find the two computers like Bit, BitTorrent does, and then it, it it syncs the two together. So it's kind of like peer-to-peer cloud driving. And Wes, uh, I would recommend it to you just for something to play with over the weekend, right? It's a really nerdy thing. And uh, for a while, this is what we were using, and in part because it's completely anonymous, completely private, we were using it to sync um, uh, installables at work, that we would have a folder of all the stuff that we uh, uh, would work together to install um, on new computers and such. And it was just easier to do on, on Resilio, which was known as BitTorrent Sync, uh, because uh, we didn't have to share drives or directories or anything. We just had to share a um, a, a barcode uh, to, to link the two devices together. So Resilio Sync, uh, if you're a nerd, it's going to be a fun couple of hours for you this weekend uh, to, to play with this particular tool. And, hey, they've got marketing with a uh... – 
an image from uh, Star Wars Episode Four because Skywalker Sound uses it. So you know what else yeah. do you need to know? All right, so I've got <laughs> yeah, two quick exactly. ones. One is one is really creepy and wild, and the other is a little more positive. Um, so I tagged this Chinese balcony drone threat. Uh, this is a tweet from uh, Dr. Eric Ding. Um, and the tweet says, of course, the Chinese government doesn't condone balcony singing or protesting. And of course, a government drone appears, quote, and this is in Chinese and Mandarin that says this. Please comply with COVID rules. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do not open window to sing. Yes, the drone actually said that. So if this uh, and this is a video. So if that doesn't say surveillance state, you know, I'm glad we don't live in China. <clears throat> I mean, there's there's other things that could say that, too. But that was just kind of crazy. And then. On a much more positive note, um, I actually got my Speed of Creativity podcast relisted on Apple iTunes, and I posted a podcast this weekend. So the podcast is episode 478 called Updates and Classroom Favorites. I'd actually recorded about a 16 or 17 minute video in my classroom, and I am very cognizant. I say this in the video. I'm not bragging here. There are so many teachers leaving the profession right now. It is it's a, I mean, we've been in crisis and it is, it is bad. Um, but I'm just very thankful to have a, an excellent teaching situation. I've been in situations very, very different. And so anyway, uh, some life updates. And so if anybody's wanting to check that out, um, I almost was a pod fader. I hadn't posted something, I think since June on that channel, but as I shift into my new season of life, I'm hoping to probably be blogging and podcasting a little bit more. So I think that's it for the show tonight. Yeah, <laughs> we've we've did it plus a couple minutes. So, Dr. Fryer, where people can find you on the internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. You can go to westfryer.com and you can find all sorts of ways to connect with me, uh, especially at westfryer.com slash after. How about you, Dr. Lever? I'm best found on the Twitters, at least for right now, at TechSavvyTeach. But this here isn't about our social media handles, although we hope you connect with us there. This is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We're a once-a-week podcast that is at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, although later this year we will be moving an hour earlier to 7 p.m. Mountain and 8 p.m. Central Time, which happens to be 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, it's because I need more beauty rest. So um, (laughs) I'm glad to be able to get to bed, you know, at 8 p.m. at night Mountain Time. But if you can't catch us live, and we are live on Facebook, uh, we're live on YouTube. There are links that go out via Twitter at EdTechSR. Please download us the podcast. You'll find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated uh, or um, on our website, edtechsr.com. And if you want to see the links from this week's episode, edtechsr.com slash links. Also subscribe to our Substack to get show notes sent right to your email. In the meantime, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.